Umikulos Lueni Olithrakun Neshie, U Podcast Othrakun Aneru, Ewi Iai Le Aunis Lethi. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in Wisconsin is one William Annis. Hello. And over in New Jersey, er, Mike, where are you now? I'm in Pennsylvania. He's in Pennsylvania now. That's Mike Lentine. And we have a special guest on the show over in Southern California, a name you probably will know, David J. Peterson. Go Kings, go. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. <laughs> like 5% of our audience knows about this because this is the kind of audience that doesn't follow sports of any kind. <laughs> but We are the 5%. <laughs> Stand with me, brothers. Great, great. Uh, anyway, so how's it going, guys? Just beachy. Dandy. As if we didn't talk for 30 minutes before starting recording. We're great. Passable. <laughs> uh, we have David Peterson on for a very special reason, but I'll save that for later, later in the show. We also wanted him for the main topic, too, which is growing a lexicon. So, William, this was your idea in the first place. Why don't you sort of explain what you mean by growing a lexicon? Well, um... I suppose I should start off by saying that most of what I'm planning to talk about today is related to naturalistic conlangs in the sense of, you know, something that might plausibly occur in a natural human language. Um, and that you want to create a language that doesn't just relax your native language into your conlang. So if you're a new conlanger, when we talk about relax, we just talk about copying the meanings from your native language into your invented language. If that's not the sort of languages you create, I think there will be some useful stuff we'll say, but some stuff probably you won't, you won't care about. And the reason I wanted David on is because the last time he was on the show, I don't even remember the episode, either during the show or before or after the show, he mentioned that the dictionary was his favorite part. Oh, yeah. Basically, if you divide a conlang into 100 percentage points, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The lexicon is 95% of the language. Right. Everything wow. else is 5%. Right. And, and that's, so that's my next point is the inflammatory statement for this month is your dictionary is your conlang and everything else is just sort of window dressing. Now mm -hmm. for me, for me, growing lexicon is not one of my favorite parts of it actually. So. <laughs> right. No, I know there are some people who get yeah. really excited by their tables of verb conjugations and, and noun stuff, right? So some people are, are interested. But in terms of tools people use to communicate, it's uh -huh. it's largely in your dictionary. So my favorite example of this I discovered recently. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s, Maurice Gross, who's a French linguist, and some of his colleagues thought that they would write a French grammar using generative grammar, because what we sometimes forget about the generative grammar movement is one of the things it was supposed to do was provide better language instruction tools. I really done that. Um, it moves ever further from that goal, but um, that's awesome. I know. So in order to, to write this generative grammar, they needed to determine the behavior of the actual used French language. 
So they went through a bunch of French verbs and just sort of made a list of things that native speakers would accept happening to that verb. Um, various kinds of transformations, passives, tense things, various kinds of argument structure things. And for every single verb, they came out with a big long list of things. Out of about 13,000 verbs, no two are alike. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so that means awesome. a vast amount of how your you your words are used is determined by the word, not some abstract conception of grammar, mm -hmm. um, as usually understood in any case, especially not if you've been exposed to the sort of generative grammar stuff. So that's that's how I, I feel like making the statement and sort of agreeing with David's statement. You know, 95% of your language is your words. Yeah. So, yeah. well, you know, what you what you bring up kind of bespeaks this um, this idea that I think we need to fight against when we're creating languages, uh, or at least now. I mean, since since uh, since the online communities have, have sprung up, uh, which is that um, much much of conlanging has been influenced since the mid '90s by linguistics, uh, and usually by people that are in in linguistics or related to linguistics in some way that are um, kind of bringing their knowledge to the conlanging community in bits and pieces. Um, and there seems to have arisen this idea that uh, what linguists do is, right, they take a, a language as it exists in the wild, and then they analyze it, producing some sort of an analysis, um, some sort of like kind of a metastructure that is this language deconstructed. Uh, and then the idea that has arisen is that conlangers, the conlangers job is to go from that structure backwards to the real language. Um, not only is it impossible, um, but it produces a lot of unsatisfactory results and also produces a lot of um, kind of ideas that, that don't readily ring true. That is that, you know, language tends to kind of bow to, um, uh, kind of like underlying meta structure at all stages. Uh, whereas really it's that structure that we're trying our best to glean from what is just like a mess, a gigantic right, mess. Right, right. Spoken by a whole bunch of different uh, mouths and brains all over the place. Uh, and where no two people necessarily have exactly the same grammar in their brain. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, and. Um, I Go ahead, George. I just want to say, yeah, I think there is sort of a problem with people incorporating people starting from linguistic theory and starting from sort of a platonic ideal of the grammar of their language and going out. I don't know if in all cases there's really a um, an alternative to that, but, you know, the, there are things to consider there. Right. Um, and another one of my examples is Esperanto, mm -hmm. which it actually has speakers. And we have this, I, and unfortunately, it's more um, gung-ho promoters talk about its simplicity, but that's complete bunkus, right? You have the same long collection of rules for individual words and idioms and how words are used and whether or not it can be a passive and so on and so mm -hmm. forth is exactly the same as you get in Maurice Gross's giant list. So so much of language learning is taking place in the behavior of individual words. So, um, and not so, only um, not only that, with or, or I just wanted to throw this out with Esperanto. Uh, you know, I took a class on it 
uh, when I was at Berkeley to learn it. It was uh, it was kind of a student run class and it was elective, but it was taught by two native Esperanto speakers. Mm -hmm. really? um, yeah, yeah. They um, one was born in Russia, uh, and her parents spoke uh, different languages. They, or they spoke, uh, so she grew up learning Russian, speaking Russian and Esperanto. But she would only speak Esperanto with her family. Uh, like they wouldn't use Russian. And then their family moved to the United States and she learned English. Another grew up in Korea and she learned, uh, in South Korea and she learned Korean and Esperanto. Again, only speaking Esperanto with her family. And then they moved to the United States where she learned English. They somehow met each other and they wound up at Berkeley at the same time. Um, they, you know, they knew each other from Esperanto, uh, meetings. And so then they put on this class and, and I was there for the first one. So that was kind of cool. But, um, as I was learning it, and this was me pre-conlang, I didn't, I had never thought of creating languages yet at this point. Um, you know, they were teaching us the grammar and blah, 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 and the history of Esperanto and how great it was. And, um, and I would just pick up on these things. I was like, well, if you can do that, then you can also do this. Mm. And, you know, I just started producing things. Yeah. I, I'd mess around with word order because you could. Uh, I, I learned Latin. I, I taught myself Latin a bit. And of course, there's the whole word order thing with that. And so it's mm -hmm. like, there were all these things that I was doing. And every single time I would run up against the wall, I'd be like, well, yes, you can do that, but no, you can't. It's just not how <laughs> we use the language. Hmm. It's like, what are you talking about? You can do it. It's like, no. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, Esperanto, not as simple. Lesson right. learned. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I kind of getting into how this gets into creating a lexicon. Um, one thing I note that is in some of some really good uh, Natlang bilingual dictionaries that I don't see in Conlang dictionaries a lot is examples. And I don't mean like sentence examples, um, but I mean, let's see, what can, um, the certain exam, um, they'll have listings of certain like uh, idiomatic phrases. I'm trying right. to think of one right. uh, real quickly. Um, well, I've got one in my brain. So ancient Greek, it might have words for loud and quiet. I can't think mm. of them offhand, but you don't say that. You normally say that a sound is big or small. Mm. Oh. And if your conling does that, you should tell us that. You should tell us that with, with the word big or, you know, you probably want the definition in both entries just for clarity and you're not writing this so out. So I, I guess, I guess in, in a good, Greek dictionary, then the listing I'm describing would be like you would have big, uh, you would have the word, and it would be glossed as big, and then it would have an example, you know, tilde sound or right. big, big sound, and it'd say loud sound. Right, exactly. That's that's exactly. that's the kind of thing I'm just think I'm thinking of formatting too, but you know, that's something that you need to consider, and it is important to consider, you know. Not just absolutely what words are in your lexicon, because like William said, with big, um, with, uh, with big, you know, ancient Greek uses, you know, big and small rather than loud and soft, but they have loud and soft for sound. I actually, and, um, I would have to go verify that. They may not. Yes. They may not. They may not. Well, I yeah. do know, I have an example, uh, from Chinese, uh, that, um, Everybody can drink, but uh, I thought of the about this. This is not necessarily the same kind of thing, but so in English, you order a Pepsi or a Coke, 
Um, in Chinese, you order a kule, which literally just means cola. Mm-hmm. So we have a word cola, and Chinese has kuko and baishu, uh, Coke and Pepsi. But mm-hmm. we just phrase that differently when we, you know, are at a restaurant. That's sort of a little getting into pragmatics and stuff, but it's sort of a and a good thing to know how your words are used, and that could spin off into a whole other topic. So, right. Well, the the point is, it is wildly, insanely unlikely for some word A in language A to match perfectly to word B in language B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. You, especially a, a single word list is is lying to you if it's about a natural language mm-hmm. um, and is is unlikely um, in an invented language if you're aiming at naturalism. I mean, a word like television probably doesn't have too much scope for strange diver- diversions in meaning yeah. um, in the short in the short term, but common words you might, right? The things that the word sweet can, you know, the taste sweet can metaphorically extend to in languages is quite huge. Yes. Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, and this is, uh, I I personally think this is good advice for anybody learning a natural language. But one of the things that uh, basically what I always do, because, you know, we have a bunch of language dictionaries, I'm sure we all do, is if I want to know what, uh, if I want to know how to express a certain concept uh, in a a given language, um, the first thing I do is I look it up in the English to whatever language side. And like with my Hawaiian books, I actually have two different ones, one that's English to Hawaiian, one that's Hawaiian English. So I look it up in the English to Hawaiian side and I see usually they give me one or like seven options. And so then what I do is I look up option one. I see what it is. Then I go over to the Hawaiian English side and look that word up. Yeah. And then because because it gets defined from a different perspective. Right. You know, they're not they're not defining it as in, you know, what English word does this match up to? It's more like um Here's this word in Hawaiian. How is it used in Hawaiian? And then that gives you, at least you know, with uh, with text, right? With a, with a book example, that gives you a better idea of exactly what this word means and how it's used, as opposed to just looking up to a one to one correspondence list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. When, so the- when we uh, when we did our um, sorry, William, uh, when we did our uh, word creation episode. One thing that I think Bianca suggested was when you are coining a new word, go to Wiktionary and then look at the examples from other languages and look those up mm-hmm. and see how sort of the semantic fields differ. Right. I think it's useful to think about word meaning as not some a point, but as a cloud. And from uh-huh. language to language to language, there may be a lot of overlap but every language is going to also have little bits that, or sometimes quite large bits that extend beyond what we're used to in our native languages. And that division can happen multiple ways, right? You could have your native language has a very small cloud of meaning around a word. Mm-hmm. Um, and other languages might split that cloud up differently, or they might have a much larger cloud, which encompasses a very wide range of meanings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I, um, remember, uh, doing when I was learning, uh, Chinese, uh, both Spanish and Chinese divide the, the, the major senses of English to know into two words. Actually, arguably Chinese could 
might d- derive it in might uh, divide it into three different uh words and i learned the chinese by in my hand prete- head pretending that i was explaining it in spanish to a spanish speaker because on the surface they look the same spanish has saber and conocer mm-hmm. which is you know informational knowledge and acquaintance and then chinese has uh zhidao and renshu which mm. are similar but there's you know a lot of differences with spanish you can use conocer with a place where you've been but chinese i don't think you can do that i think you have to use zhidao or you do something <coughs> like i've been there at yeah so it you have to sort of so that can be one thing is comparing different languages and then figuring out where you want to draw your lines. Right. What, um, one thing I used to did when I was looking up uh, some Esperanto, um, I was l- using, I think, uh, learn, learnu.net, I think it was. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, when I didn't know a word, I'd look it up both in English and Spanish and all the Russian and Chinese to make sure I was getting yeah. the right word. Um, <laughs> to see how they kind of skewered that word upon the different meanings coming from different languages. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the very minimum, Almost all of your words in your dictionary should have sort of multiple glosses listed. And even that's not, not going to be complete if you're being realistic. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I mean, I, in the last month, or, well, I mean, it started sooner, but I've embarked on this project that we mentioned, I think, two episodes ago of what I'm calling a Conlanger's Thesaurus, mm-hmm. which exactly addresses this idea to sort of get me out of old habits to understand how these, what were, you know, polysemy, right? The, the multiple meanings a single word can have, can have across languages. And it is really hard to find good dictionaries that tell you everything a word can mean. Uh-huh. Yeah. Especially online. And even print dictionaries can be very depressing. I mean, there's some that are brilliant and wonderful. Um, but a word to word mapping is almost going to almost always not telling you things you need to know. Yeah. In the notes, you have a little list of things, patterns of polysemy that sure. uh, is interesting to me. Why don't you go through down that list and we can talk a little bit about that? Um, well, the obvious way a single word can take on additional meetings is by metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns out there are common patterns of um, synesthesia <laughs> in language. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, the modality, a term that describes a sound mm-hmm. might metaphorically come to describe a color. Mm-hmm. So my favorite example in English is we talk about somebody who's wearing clothing that's loud. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and we can use the word sweet, which is, a you know, a taste flavor to describe all sorts of things, including aroma. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. metaphor, and there are many kinds of metaphors we can have. Um, idioms and phrases that get sort of fixed over time and take over space and words meaning. Um, another big one is metonymy, um, which is a funny word that describes a situation where you name something by something that occurs with it. My favorite example is, is sort of a stereotyped phrase from old Westerns where you talk about how the cowboy rode into the sunset with his chest unbuttoned. And what? unless he's, yeah, unless he's a zombie, his chest is not actually, <laughs> but his shirt is. Mm. Never uh, I've never heard that. But. You've never heard that? Yeah, it's, a, it's no. a kind of a gruesome one, but it's often made fun of because it's a, a kind of a shocking metonymy. A more common sort of thing is like when we talk about the White House said this, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happens all the time in right. in uh, English. Washington said this. Yeah, Beijing yeah, yeah, yeah. said this. You but, know? I mean, it, it's hardly the only language. I mean, the word for pharaoh means great house in Egyptian. Hmm. That's right. so Once again, it's the building representing the person, representing an institution there. Yeah, but there's all kinds <laughs> of uh, metonymy, so. Yeah, yeah, met, uh, metonymy. Metonymy. Metonymy, <laughs> metonymy sorry. Um, and then there's just sort of the normal wear and tear of time and things get reanalyzed. When I was growing up, fun was only a noun. In my lifetime, it has become also an adjective, although some old farts still complain. Is, hmm. that, is that entirely true? Because I think I've read somewhere that fun has been an adjective for longer than that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would like to add uh, just two short things to it. One thing that's very interesting is to see words that actually don't change over time. I mean, mm-hmm. aside from sounds, I mean meanings. Like mm-hmm. the word for, word for sun, S-O-N. Mm-hmm. It's been, at least in Indo-European, it's been sun forever. Right. It's, I mean, P-I-E, basically. It's sun. Mm-hmm. And actually, one thing I was interested in, so, uh, just while you were talking there, I went and looked up the etymology of sweet. And apparently, it was pretty much sweet from P-I-E. Right. Mm. And it, it covers much the same ground. The um, cognate covers much the same ground in ancient Greek. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, but, you know, and then obviously, there are, of course, tons of words that... Uh, that, you know, change, you know, radically over time. But um, that, that that's one of the things that I find uh, at least very instructive. By the way, I don't know if, uh, if you guys use it, but I recommend a website called um, edimonline.com. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, I have seen that site before. It's a great, it's a great yeah, thing. I, I'm yeah, not it's, thinking, it's great. Know. The guy who runs it is, uh, but you know, whatever. He, he just gets <laughs> so, um, I, another thing I, I wanted to mention is that, um, it can, um, if you're trying to do something naturalistic as opposed to, uh, just, you know, really artistic and fanciful, then, you know, um, there is a, there, I, I would add a word of caution for, especially when you come up with a new term, um, to immediately start proliferating it with other senses. Um, something that I found to be the most useful when expanding a lexicon is you start with a word that at some point in time had at least had one basic meaning. Most, most words usually do if you go back far enough, but you know, it could be because we have incomplete records, but whatever. Anyway, so the way it accrues other meanings though, is usually when somebody is trying to discuss something that they don't have words for. Yeah. And they make use of what vocabulary they have on hand. Uh, and that's, um, and actually working directly with translation, trying to translate things, uh, using your own, you know, using what you've got. That's one of the ways that I've found, um, you can create some of the most fruitful and interesting and naturalistic, uh, proliferations for a given stem. Um, so, uh, and often I'll, I'll, come up with things that i would not have thought of if i'd just been sitting down and saying okay what else could this word mean what other context could it be used in uh so often uh, if uh, if a word is new it'll just i'll just start with it and it will just have kind of one basic meaning and it will be kind of like in a in a, in a hazy state i'll say well you know what else can i possibly do with this uh what fun can i have with it um and you know translation is usually what uh, what gets me there 
Yeah. Yeah. Translation is a really good thing. I might add that, um, a couple things. One is that when you are translating and like for me, translating is, has been like the primary way I build lexicon. Um, and one thing that helps me is to when I am lacking a word, I don't just make up a word, but I look through my dictionary or search for other related words that I think I could put an extra sense on that would mean that word that now that's, you know, one way of doing it. Another thing you can, that, uh, you know, thinking carefully while translating can do is, uh, trying to come up with other sort of idiomatic uses. Like, um, in a translation that I did for Ayuruyo, I had to come up with a word, um, uh, with a way of saying to make peace, and, you know, I could have been extremely boring and uh, unlikely and just said, okay, to make peace. Yeah. <laughs> and d- done an exact calc. But, you know, I had other ideas. You know, you could do a lot of different ways with, you know, making a different route or doing all sorts of or deriving a verb from peace or something. What I en- ended up doing was to change to make an idiomatic phrase to promise peace and that sort of made the it that means to to make peace or to sign a peace treaty or various other things right and then yeah that makes complete sense in all of this talking about words taking multiple meanings i mean it, it might start to sound a little crazy um especially if you look at the incredibly wide range of meanings I mean, compared to someone who speaks English to see all of the things like um, in writing the thesaurus, I once did a search of a whole bunch of dictionaries on the different things the word sweet can mean. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised how many times the word also meant salty. <laughs> huh. wow. Now, it turns out in those languages, there's a, a sort of a joint sense, which means tasty. Ah. Mm. Uh. Right. So that makes sense. But the first, it's a little shocking, but you're like, what? How can this possibly work? But once you see that tasty, then you're like, okay, that makes sense. But uh, yeah. the, the, the point I'm leading up to is to a surprisingly large degree, words take their meaning from the situation they appear in and the company they keep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, sort of formally people talk about collocations. What words come together regularly to take on a special meaning? And mm-hmm. I was just talking about this, right? We got in Greek, megas, big, but when you talk about noises, that's what you use to say something's loud or quiet. You use big and small. So (laughs) even though you might see languages with this tremendous range of meanings, how the words actually get used removes that ambiguity. So that's the next, that's another reason examples are so important in a dictionary. Well, to me, though, when you're coming up with those sentences, that's actually a new definition. Those are two different words housed in the same lexeme mm-hmm. as it were. And so that's that's actually what I do with them in in my own dictionaries. Uh, just a really easy example off the top of my head is uh um in Dothraki the words for uh color how do you say this color saturation, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um if you want to talk about say you know blue, there's regular blue or something, but you want to talk about light blue and dark blue, uh the words that you use are shallow and deep mm. oh, so interesting so deep we obviously have in english we say deep blue but uh, i don't think we say shallow blue very much but um their original senses were for um water 
you know, how, how deep and how shallow water is obviously very important uh, if you're fording. But um, the idea is shallower water is lighter, deeper water is darker. And so those terms got applied directly to colors. Um, mm. But when when I'm writing this up in the dictionary, I basically, you know, so if you, yeah, if you look at the English to Dothraki side, and you look, you know, light and, and well, obviously light is a lot of polysemy in English, but you know, the one that refers to color, you just look mm-hmm. over and it just says this word. And then, um, same for dark. But then if you go to the other side, it's just two different definitions, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and as far as from a user's perspective, that's really all you need to know. Uh, and then, you know, if, if somebody's interested, they can look at that and say, Oh, there must be some sort of connection here, blah, 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 blah. But, right. um, these, these very, uh, sort of uh what how can i call them these sort of uh more basic adjectives like uh big small and to another degree uh deep and shallow can be can have a whole lot of um you know versatility i know that um like when i compare english and spanish there's not a lot of differences when i compare chinese and english there's a lot of very subtle shades of meaning. Like, for example, in English, when we say somebody has a big nose, it, we mean that it extends a long way from their face. Mm-hmm. In Chinese, when you say that they have a big nose, it's they have a wide nose. And mm-hmm. a nose that extends far from your face is tall. It's uh, high. That's a high nose. Tall. <laughs> That's good. <Yeah>. Gao. <laughs> Sorry. I, can I just say that I love the character for Gao? just makes me think of it. Anyway. um, Right. So one thing that's interesting is one of the papers I saw that looked at the dictionaries of a whole bunch of African languages and a few other languages Mm -hmm. to try to collect patterns of common polysemy. 58% of the instances of polysemy, which was several hundred, only occurred in a single language. Wow. So... Mm. If you're looking for wild and crazy meaning, because I know some people who invent language sometimes like to strain at, you know, wildness, this is a place you can do it because the creativity of human languages and only the 50 or so that were checked here is tremendous, huge. Um, the commonalities <clears throat> are sometimes obvious, but they're not as common as we might think. It's very cool. Yeah, no, I, that to me was the most interesting thing about it. While at the same time, you know, I wrote the thesaurus with the idea of <laughs> telling people some common ones just to sort of nudge their thinking in different ways. Um, so how, I mean, do we want to talk through, I know we've talked about translation, right? You got a new word and then you use translation to accrete things to it. But I think you can do a certain amount of work on a new word for some other related meanings. Do we want to talk about some of those a little bit or not? Uh, well, sure. I, maybe this will be a good place to insert this. Maybe not. I'll let you decide after I'm done because I'm going forward <laughs> anyway. But, um, I, I know we're talking about the lexicon, but I also wanted to just bring up, um, what I thought was a very insightful point about, uh, grammar. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a, a, a wonderful book I read called, um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's by, uh, Joan Bybee. Um, and William Paliuka and a third person whose name will not come to me. Um, but, um, one of the things that they showed with, uh, grammatical systems, it's specifically, uh, a look at the histories of, uh, tense modality and aspect systems, mm-hmm. um, is that, um, 
modern language that is uh, language at state X, uh, the the amount of um, kind of uh, what do they call them? Uh, they have a special term for them, whatever. All right, I'm just going to move forward with this. Uh, a given term, its use will be partly or, or actually in large part um, decided by what it used to mean. So, uh, for example, there are several different ways that you can evolve um, like a uh, progressive aspect. Uh-huh. Um, and then there are... Um, some that are just completely oddball that lang- you know one language on earth does it uh, so it's not as if there's only one path or one set of paths but then a lot of them will come from for example um you know b plus uh participle uh, a lot of them will come from uh the word stay mm-hmm. uh so mm-hmm. or stay or the word stand uh a lot of them will come from um uh, a construction that uh, talks about location um so yeah, it something be something like I am at and then verb, and that means you're in the process of doing it. Uh, one of the things she noticed, and this is just one area of, t- of TMA, uh, they looked at everything. Uh, one of the things that they noticed is that um, how a given thing manifests itself in the modern state of a language is going to be partially determined by what it used to be. Um, so it won't be the case that a progressive in language X will be exactly the same as progressive in language Y. And the reason will often be what its history was. And the same, I think the same principle can be applied, not, uh, can be applied outside of grammar. It can be applied to the lexicon. So it does matter if your modern day word for, I don't know, a uh, light, you know, came originally from deep or it came originally from something having to do with light. It came originally from, you know, some other location. Uh, it will manifest itself in certain ways. Uh, and that's something that really you, you have to model by kind of slow evolving it or working with it or, or creating, uh, or translating with it. Uh, anyway. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, I've recently been seduced by a theory of grammar that views grammar and vocabulary as part of a lexicon. So they're kind of all the same thing anyway. Mm. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that's, even if you don't, if you're not prepared to accept that somewhat radical idea, it's a productive. You should be. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you're not, um, I think for conlangers who do not care about the theory, it's a useful fiction for making a more realistic and sort of lexically rich and grammatically rich language. Mm. Uh, um, I think we can say that any linguistic theories really can be, whether you uh, are interested in the theory or not, can have some little bit of useful fiction for conlangers in there, because I don't think any of them are really that, I mean, no scientific theory or scientific model is really telling you exactly what the thing is but like linguistic theories it seems like are definitely not even so solid as well definitely not so solid as like physics um well and right right and not even so solid as some other uh softer sciences and and there's also a there's also a caution here which is uh, something i think is known in linguistics but not perhaps not well known outside of it which is especially with syntacticians, uh, there's an idea that uh, there's there well there's an idea floating around about psychological reality, 
That is, um, you know, is this theory, is this actually explaining how language works in the brain? And I think that there's an impression outside of linguistics that um, the goal is always to create a theory that is psychological reality. So they're trying to get at how language works in the brain. That is not actually always the case with syntacticians. Uh, many syntacticians are simply trying to come up with a framework that would allow them to be able to model language. There's that. There's, there's just, no, yeah, they're just, they're just no trying to find a way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, so there's no, there's no claim often, uh, for the psychological validity of a given, uh, formula. It, it, um, there was a really wonderful example with, uh, with, with, uh, physics, which is that we have physics that can describe, you know, the effects of gravity, but we're not saying that these models are exactly how gravity works. It's just what we use to describe its effects, essentially. Right. Um, right. And and often uh, syntacticians are doing the same thing. And so one has to keep that in mind uh, when looking at especially syntactic theories and realize uh, that this is not necessarily the way language is supposed to work in the brain. And once you have that in mind, then that should basically kind of it should affect the way you use that theory when you're creating a language, if you're trying to create something naturalistic. Yeah, I think yeah, to yeah. stretch your analogy just a little bit further, you know, there are probably a lot of syntactic theories that we, well, we probably don't know that they're wrong because un- mm-hmm. until we get really, really good, uh, brain scans, we're not going to do that. And like, we'd have to get much, much better than we are. But, um, like in physics, we know that Newtonian gravity is essentially wrong, but we still use it on certain scales because it's it's more it's easier to do the calculations. Right, right. I mean, uh, when thinking about how to create new words and to think about you know possible extensions of meaning, I actually think formal semantics is a useful tool. Not because I think the human brain. <laughs> Does, does typed lambda calculus. <laughs> uh-huh. But because it's, it's, if you're really into this, it's a useful tool and a useful practice to think about all of the different things that can go into your words. So for example, in English, we have move, run, walk, saunter, flow, ooze. Mm-hmm. They're all descri- describing movement from one place to another. Yeah. But they're in, in addition, encoding all sorts of other information. Yeah. In the case of run and walk, it's simply talking about how differences in locomotion. Saunter has an, you know, an implication of behavior that has nothing to do with movement per se. Mm-hmm. You know, flow and ooze have to do with consistency. So there's all sorts of ways different pieces of information can get crammed into your words and something like formal semantics. Again, if you've got the stomach for it, um, can be a tool for thinking about that. Uh, I think having the stomach for it is the right way to describe that. Yeah, I mean, formal semantics is tough going, but some I know there are definitely some conlangers who like that sort of stuff. So, you know, if that's the sort of thing you like, then you will like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Right. I mean, so for me, one example that I did recently. So here in Wisconsin, it was very exciting. We had a couple, hawk couple, got together and laid three eggs on the side of one of our campus buildings. And so they mounted at some distance a camera and we got to watch the little baby hawks 
which now a whole bunch of people now know the proper word for a baby hawk, which is Ayas. Um, I just, spell that? Yes, E-Y-A-S, possibly E-Y-A-S-S, depending on how you're feeling that day. Um, <laughs> but I was watching them one day because it was, you know, the obsession of everyone. And it was hot out, so they were panting. I'm like, ooh, I don't think Tsai has a word for pant yet. <laughs> so I created that. And it starts off as pants, just referring to heat or exertion. Mm-hmm. And then I, baby hawks, even adult hawks, are actually not very dignified creatures. No. Right? When they're sitting there with their wings out, panting, and they have this very funny habit of turning their heads completely upside down to look at things. <laughs> which is charming, but not very dignified. So it made me think of them not looking bright. So I added the additional sense to the, the verb stem to, uh, to mean to breathe with your mouth open. Mouth breather. <laughs> right, exactly. And then the last thing I added, just and I don't know if I'll keep this, but I like the idea of this word would also indicate that you have nasal congestion because your nose is stuffed up and you have to breathe through your mouth. Mm-hmm. Right, so just, that's the, the, the like relation. Just like hawks, right, who are <laughs> stuffed up from all those mice they're snorting down. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just one way to think about this. How, you know metaphor image really look at what's happening what is this really encoding is it encoding that it's hot which is more like what pant does there's exertion or heat or is it encoding that your mouth is just open Hmm. um so there are lots of distant ways to to do that um i keep notes on the major cognitive metaphors that i've decided to use for language um so for example in kakasai the word for foot is often related to the overt sort of expression of political power or violence Hmm. Um, and there was a great LCC presentation where a guy gave an entire talk about how you might use cognitive metaphors in a language, and we can include that link. David, John, were you at that one? John Quijada. John, it was John Quijada. Okay, yeah. Research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great talk. Yeah. Uh, it was um, – if uh, if you're looking for, by the way, a print resource, if that's uh, if the type of thing that uh, that helps you out a lot – um, really nice introduction, short introduction is, um, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's metaphors we live by. Oh, uh, right. Absolutely. It's very short. It's very seventies, very seventies. <laughs> um, there's, uh, there's one point at time in, in time where, uh, he, he's, he's reminiscing about having a class and he says like, uh, one of his female students come in, comes in in tears and says, saying, I'm having a metaphor problem with my boyfriend. And so they apparently just stop class to discuss, you know, to rap about her situation. And it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's the 70s. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, it's a really, it's a really nice intro. Um, beyond that, uh, Lakoff's Women Fire and Dangerous Things is more, it, it, or I'll say, uh, Metaphors We Live By is more kind of English focused. Um, Women fire and dangerous things uh, branches out to other languages, um, yeah. but it's uh, kind of it's longer, it's it's tougher going. Uh, it's also excellent. It is tougher, um, going, but it is it is interesting stuff. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I think we do need to kind of, as as much as I love this discussion, I think we do need to kind of start reeling it in, not necessarily wrap it up right now. Uh-huh. I do want to mention we've gone it's, through most of like what William mentioned and quite a bit more but uh, William you have some examples of some very good conlang dictionaries including Okuna which is really great Okuna is um, great 
it's awesome. Yeah, and um, some software. I've used um, Shoebox. It's pretty good. The the Shoebox and the uh, Toolkit, I think. There's still has various tools for creating Lexica. There's there's the, there's a problem in that they can be a little bit buggy sometimes. And honestly, I've taken to just writing the entries straight up in LaTeX. Yeah. Not not the way William does it, writing the the <laughs> uh, the the macros and everything, but just like using my um, my little uh, LaTeX editor and 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 writing them out. We were discussing this before the show started is, you know, there's no really good dictionary writing software. Spreadsheets are appalling. Yeah. Um, if you're aiming at the sort of richness we've been spending the entire episode talking about, yeah. um, they're not really well designed for that. Um, they don't leave room for things like examples mm-hmm. or multiple definitions. They're just not good at this. Um, and I still think writing a dictionary in text in your favorite word processor or you know, your favorite web page to design tool or however you're going to present your language is still probably, frankly, the best, most flexible way to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we maybe don't want to hear that, but I think that's still the case. But, you know, if you are listening into this dear listener who has a whole bunch of programming experience and a wealth of resources and nothing but time and goodwill, uh, you know, because <laughs> you want to create something for conlangers. Uh, Lord, are we in need? I mean, we, we need something. We need some conlanging software. It would be awesome if there was a dictionary program that had, let's say, just one, one panel that was just uh, a lexical um, entry system. It could be customized so that you could have, say, different types for different languages or different types of languages. Uh, for uh, just to like, um, my Dothraki dictionary and my Kamakawi dictionary are completely different because it just makes sense to do it one way for one language and another right. way for another language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it would be great if there was just something simple. So when you were adding a new lexeme, you know, there's just a one little window there, had a bunch of options. You could add example sentences. You could throw in references. For example, if you're creating, um, if you're doing translations for various things, you could just have a, a spot where uh, maybe you could even store translations in the same program so that you could just throw in a reference and say this word gets used in this translation. In fact, maybe they're even automatically tagged so it will search anything you translate and throw the tags back into the lexing so that you could click everywhere and just immediately bring up every sentence where the word is ever used. You know, you can give your own definitions. You can It will automatically generate, um, you know, English to conlang, conlang to English in various formats. Uh, it, it will do that for you. Um, this is why I've that, not written this tool. I know. And not only that, but you could throw in tags. You could throw in tags. For like example, just um, using a metaphor. Like you, you just say like, you know, here's a guiding metaphor for that's used in the language. And then you could just start tagging entries. And you could say, oh, here are a whole bunch of things that work within that metaphor. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, we we need something like this. <laughs> uh, and then I think that William can explain to you just exactly how tall that order is. Yes, yeah, it is pretty tall. <laughs> and 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 David has basically described exactly, almost exactly. I mean, he's added one extra bit that I hadn't thought of before. But he's basically described what I think is the ideal system. And that's why I've never tried to write it. Right. Effectively, you need um, a corpus management tool as yeah. part of your dictionary writing tool. I mean, there are commercial projects that do this, but they're often terrible. 
Lord. And if you want, uh, if you want money, Kickstarter, it's there. <laughs> uh, like, I yeah. Um, well, I we'll promote any Kickstarter this. that there is for, um, for creating a dictionary writing system, but I hmm. don't know how far it will go. We'll try, you yes. know, we'll try to hoodwink the linguists into thinking that this is actually for them. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, then they'll, they'll open their coffers. Uh, and then, you know, in the end, it will turn out, no, it's just for conlangers. Sorry. No, 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 no. no. It, honestly, if you did write, if you did target it for what you've described, it would work equally well for all kinds of, you know, language documentation. Field linguists would love love they this would. as I, well. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think because if you've ever looked at the horrific, the, just the terror of the Sil shoebox format. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. yeah I haven't looked at that much, so I'm not even quite familiar with it, but I'm not it's sure. It's like LaTeX for dictionaries. Mm. It's not it's, it's it's complicated. It is complicated. And it's buggy too. Anyway, and... so uh back to the dictionaries that I love. I love um David Peters Pearson's Pearson. No, Matt Pearson. Sorry, I'm confused. <laughs> Okuna, that dictionary is magnificent because it's... the entries are nice nice and beefy. He gives the multiple meanings. He gives plenty of examples. He gives you, and getting back to this issue of the 13,000 French verbs, all different mm-hmm. in their syntax, partially because of how Okuna works and what he was playing with when he invented the language. You really need to explain how, which case means what yeah. uh, with your verbs and as part of your definition. And he just did all of that and it's all there and it's, it's wonderful. I think it's an ideal. Certainly none of my languages, um, yeah, and, I can say that and he I, also has uh, all these um uh the these examples of idiomatic translations too because I remember I see that right here uh ella means in each case in any case anyway anyhow regardless but he has for example ella etan one at a time one by one that's something that from the base definition you wouldn't know it could be used that particular way right right um those that's that's very important to to have that kind of thing but you know a lot of conlang dictionaries don't go that far what did, what do you know what you used to write this one this i mean it's, i'm looking it's, over it's the tech i don't LaTeX. think he's using anything special oh i have to get yeah. i have to get my hands in that it looks fabulous it does look fabulous um i think he has his own special formatting macros for latex or something too he does yeah oh i um, i would love to see the source anyway um, another dictionary, uh, David added for Aman Yar. Aman Yar. Yeah. Aman Yar. Which we want to feature in the future, but we're afraid of. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's, there's so much more to that language. And unfortunately, it's all in written notebooks mm. possessed by David Bell's family. Uh, I don't think, I, I really don't think we'll ever see it. Um, but like that, uh, that dictionary that's on his webpage. That's the, that's him transferring his own dictionary to the web page. Um, and he never got beyond the letter A. Yeah. Uh, uh. And, you know, it, well, it, what it, it has is really awesome. It yeah. is. It, it's, it's, there's, there's stuff in there that I think, um, like conlangers and translators, I think would be more interested in seeing, which is, um, uh, something that, uh, is kind of something that's absent from the Dothraki dictionary, but I've started to add to future dictionaries. So I've, I've, I've started to add, uh, etymological information. Um, and I find it very useful in reminding me exactly where terms come from and then how exactly their use should be, uh, delimited, uh, mm-hmm. in the future. So, because I mean, a lot of these things in order to, 
to really get that realistic lexical item, you have to bear in mind exactly where the word came from. Otherwise, um, you're going to start using it in ways like, you know, if, it, if, you, if you're just looking at the definition, you may start using it in ways that only make sense if, you know, in some other language, in whatever right. language you're thinking in your head. You know? Right. <sighs> well. um, and then we have this one dictionary, which is very attractive and actually uses the terrifying um, shoebox format. I don't know how to say the name of her language. <laughs> um, Asha'il. Asha'il. Okay. Or Asha'ile. Um, it, does, it doesn't matter. All right. Um, it, it's, it's a nice output and I think is a good, uh, I, I, it could be better in the sense of there could be more detail, but some of the entries that are more detailed are very well done indeed. So I think they're worth looking at. She's got a, she, she she's got a brilliant. And, and she's a, and she's a brilliant, uh, she's a brilliant programmer, coder person. Mm. She, um, oh, you know what? Uh, gosh, another dictionary. I don't know why I didn't put on there is Sylvia Sotomayor. She did a, she did it entirely using PHP where, um, everything is cross referenced. Uh, so anytime a stem appears in any definition, you can click on the stem and go to its dictionary entry. And it also automatically references, um, her online translations. So you can, click to see where um where the words have appeared in translations that she's done online and they also tie directly into if she's done a, a kaylin uh or the day entry for it oh, uh, nice yeah i mean if cool. you're a programmer then yeah. it's very easy for you to come up with a tool that f- suits your language perfectly i know <laughs> <laughs> But That's to nice. generalize that is so, so much harder, right? You know, a language like Navajo compared to a language like Chinese, right? If you can write a dictionary that can accommodate both of those and I don't know Greek, then you're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, it's very different. Uh, what Especially else do we want to say about this? I mean, um, we've got a few links that will be in the show notes to various tools, the shoebox format we've mentioned a few times. Um, some of these dictionaries that are great. Um, there was a, uh, workshop in someplace in Germany on, uh, lexical typology, right? Which is sort of, you know, typology, but for dictionaries and words, um, that has lots of interesting slides talking about all the issues we've talked about today with a little bit more talking about some, uh, grammar stuff, but there's all sorts of interesting stuff just to, to prompt your thinking, not because you want to become a lexical typologist. <laughs> what what does that noise mean? Hmm? Oh, that was me. Um, that that's a noise I make when I think about becoming a lexical typologist. Is that an approving noise, like donuts, mm, or is that a, a less happy noise? <laughs> no, it's it. That's the only thing that noise means. It doesn't have any other meanings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Um, are we done with this topic? Anybody have so. any final thoughts before we move on? I don't think so. Not me. No, I've been. I'm. I haven't. I need to. Like I said earlier, I haven't had too too much experience with my uh, with the creating of the lexicons. That's not hasn't been my favorite thing in the past. Yeah, so yeah Mike, you've been pretty silent. Do you have any crazy questions before we move on? <laughs> um. Not really. I've just been hearing, you know, what you guys have been saying about your experiences yeah. and what has worked and hasn't worked. And I've been uh, taking notes over here, and I I wish I could contribute more. I have ideas um, for making like for beefing up your lexicon, but uh, 
the only thing that I thought of that you guys, you guys haven't really mentioned was just, um, you know, sometimes taking the word, like, uh, I think I, sometimes I look around and see, like, if I see a van drive by, I'm like, huh, I don't have a word for van or something just daily. And then when William mentioned, um, the word for pant, I was thinking about this, but, um, if it's something that doesn't occur in your com, in your comlang society, I sometimes just go with maybe like deriving it from as if it were a loan word and then maybe check. Seeing if the phonology doesn't match yeah. what Iconlangs does, um, well, kind I, of like Japanese did with a lot of Western things that came into their their uh, sphere of influence. That's mm-hmm. true. Um, since I do conworlding along with my conlanging, mm-hmm. I kind of don't even bother with things that uh, my you know con cultures wouldn't encounter. So I don't have words for cars or anything because I think it's. It's kind of a waste of time to do that because I'm not going to use it to talk to modern Americans. I'm well, just going to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it, like to it do depends it, uh, on how you're using it. Yeah, I like to use my comlangs um, in journals, like personal journal entries, or like online because I really like the like I like doing it because it looks pretty and it sounds pretty and it's more of a personal thing. But I oh, that's cool. The, yeah. yeah, but I use it to talk to myself, and I everything that I see I've talked to myself about. And yeah, um, so things like car or just I have. I guess I do a pseudo con world idea in my head for a language like this language comes from this kind of a people. And maybe as if I were, um, as one time I started writing a blog about one of my con langs as if I were a field linguist going to this place and studying this language. So Ooh, um, that's an awesome way to present it. Yeah. That's what that's, I was, I was doing that. Like that. Oh, it was so, so, so great. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I've, so, I've thought of writing, I've thought of doing maybe just like sketches of, uh, I guess you could call them future langs, languages projected into the future, and like come up with a storyline of a, a field linguist in like a post-singularity world where like he digitized his mind, his brain, and has uploaded himself onto all these generation ships and is observing how languages are changing over time. (laughs) I think that would be an awesome, like, series to write. And he is dismayed to discover that everybody is speaking English. (laughs) 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 Oh, well. Or that one other language with all the apostrophes. Mm. <laughs> uh, but right, so, um, so yeah, that's anyway, what I do with mine sometimes. But um, yeah. th- like you said, it depends upon what you're going to be using it for. If your people never see a microwave in their lives, there's not really a use for it for that kind of word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if we're done with that topic, speaking of a language where you wouldn't need a word for microwave, mm-hmm. our <laughs> featured conlang is actually david's uh baby well the the thing the the baby he was hired to raise mm. uh which is dothraki so david right. i know you have explained this what what <laughs> sorry I'm, somebody I'm thinking of somebody the made a sound like yeah i was just thinking like a linguistic wet nurse <laughs> yeah <laughs> the surrogate mother of it mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um so uh David <laughs> Okay, I'm losing it a little bit. Okay. So David, I know that you've done this for maybe a dozen different interviews, but can uh, you explain a little bit where Dothraki comes from and, you know, 
all all the the process that led to you creating the language and sort of what your ideas behind it. Uh, Yes, I'll do that in 140 characters. Um, (laughs) No, but uh, all right. So uh, for those that don't read um, uh, fantasy and science fiction or uh, have HBO, which is, I think, most people on the planet, um, Dothraki is a language spoken by a fictional race of these uh, horsish fellows that go about with swords and things uh, in a fictional universe. I, I should mention, in, in case somebody is totally, um, totally naive to this, they are these are not horse people. These are humans that are sort of like Mongols. They they're not yeah. so they ride like horses. They're they're like human centaurs, and it's like <laughs> it's like a centaur with a with a with the torso of a human and the legs of a human. I, <laughs> I, that's kind of the best way to describe them. Um, <laughs> They're just, anyway, they're just people. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do this faster. They, <laughs> there's a series of books written by George R. R. Martin called The Song of Ice and Fire. That's what the series is called. The first one was called A Game of Thrones. Um, and in it, there are these Dothraki people that speak this language. In the book, there are several phrases and then a bunch of names that are supposed to come from the Dothraki language. Mm-hmm. But as it's written in English, it simply uses English as it's, you know, Meta language as it's a language of narration to uh, kind of gloss over a lot of the conversation. So, you know, you could, uh, when you're writing, you can simply say, you know, X says Y to Z in Dothraki, and you can write that in English, and that's fine. Um, they created, uh, HBO was, was, uh, got the rights to create a television series from A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, and the producers and head writers, the guys who were put in charge of this, uh, Dan Weiss and David Benioff, um, they uh, were actually creating, they were filming the pilot or, or writing the pilot. And they realized that uh, the uh, the Dothraki people in the show, they, they weren't going to have any narration, of course. So they would actually need to be speaking something. Um, and, and the word is they actually tried to come up with some sort of just made up, you know, kind of gibberish for them to speak. And they were really dissatisfied with the result. So then they hired the uh, Language Creation Society to actually flesh out the Dothraki language. There was a great big application process for it. About 30 people applied, and uh, it was, took like two months of my life that I will never have back that were just kind of grueling. Um, and anyway, at the end of it, there were five finalists, among whom were, uh, was uh, John Quijada, uh, whom we discussed, and then also uh, Bill, Dwell- Bill Weld and Simone Olivier, uh, me and Sherry Wells Jensen. It was awesome. And, it's um, surprising, anyway. it's surprising yeah. to me that, uh, Quijada was in here because, in there, because the thing he's most quote unquote famous for is, uh, Isquil, which is totally different from the, the kind of thing that you need for Dothraki. <laughs> well, that guy is, that guy's, uh, yeah. If conlanging is a skill that's completely separated, from the languages that some that somebody has created, uh, John Quixote is just an outstanding conlinger. He, he knows he he's got he's got that talent. So yeah, obviously Ithquil now Ilaksh, That's that's what he's done. But um, he's a great naturalistic conlinger, um, and also really good at coming up with the sound of something, which is obviously important to them. Uh, anyway, uh, for for ill or ought, I eventually came out at the other end, and then I've been 
working on the show ever since. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, as we're recording this, unfortunately, the wonderful fan-created materials at Dothraki.org are not available to us because their server crashed. Yeah, they they may be up. They may be up when you actually listen to this. They they, they may be there. Yeah, it'll be like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a good chance. If and if they're not at Dothraki.org, then they will probably be at learndothraki.conlang.org. Uh, and if that URL doesn't exist by the time this airs, then you know, so be it. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, actually, you can go there. I will either it, that will either be where Dothraki.org is, or it will just redirect to Dothraki.org. I'll say that. And then, so yeah, uh-huh. hopefully, hopefully, by the time that this airs, you will be able to see they, they, they put up an entire fan website and they have a really thorough dictionary of uh, at least everything that's been up. It's not as complete or as, um, or as kind of, uh, conlang user friendly as, as my dictionary, but it's got a lot of stuff up there and they have paradigms and blah, blah, blah. And see how verbs are conjugated. It's fun. Now, um, very, uh, very quickly, let's get a little do a little bit more meta meta conversation. Now, you're not actually allowed to release your dictionary and uh, reference grammar, are you? Uh, no, I I can kind of do whatever uh, HBO allows me to do, and they're pretty lenient. But at the same time, there is still an off chance that there could be a a Dothraki dictionary like actually published. Uh, in which case it would not behoove me to release the whole thing because obviously so they, yeah they they obviously would want to make money off of anything so they right. they they probably have you pull an okrand and write the the Dothraki dictionary for them yeah mm. yeah so uh, and actually just uh, just uh, for those that are curious uh, this has come up um, and and uh, but the the story right now is that. Um, uh, the HBO folks, who are the ones that have to pursue this, um, haven't found a publisher that's interested. So, wow! Yeah. But you do have, but you do have a blog, Dostraki.com. Yeah, right. And yep. you do uh, a fair bit of sort of grammar discussions and different things about Dostraki. I noticed that while uh, season two of Game of Thrones was going down, yeah, you had a a blog post on every episode. Yeah, and I tried to. I, I put up all the uh, all, all the dialogue that I could find, uh, or, or that appeared in the show. But uh, sometimes it didn't always match up. But that's kind of the nature of the beast, I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you guys, uh, I'm I'm kind of hogging the show, but uh, William, <laughs> Mike, what, what 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 questions? Well, well there, there is one money. other piece of information or some description of a system that is available, and that is your presentation from the Language Creation Conference in 2000. It was nine. Nine. Eleven. No, it was 11. last year. It was last it's year. May 2011. The reason I was briefly confused is because I'm looking at your slides and you give the date is May 14, 2001. Are you <laughs> serious? Yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Some sort of conlanging through time. Um, That's amazing. The world was so young then. We yeah. didn't know nine eleven. Okay, right. Uh, so oh, that is that's just that's just priceless. I like that. All right. Oh, I I'm actually debating whether I should fix that and put up new slides because I think that's charming. That is kind of funny. <laughs> so the, the main focus is how 
um, sort of event structure in your verbs relates to your um, verb system and how it relates to your declension system or, or the case yeah. roles, which I think yeah. is great. Most conlangs I see do not worry about this. The only other one I know is, again, Okuna, mm -hmm. since that was his shtick for that was to really think through these. So, I mean, what... <laughs> When did you decide, okay, I'm going to use the ablative for an irresultative? Oh, <laughs> well, it's, it's actually, that was my way of trying to describe basically what you were seeing with that. Because it was kind of like all organic. So the, the way it, it was done really through translation, where, um, you know, Lexings will come up or where I will need to translate something usually for the show. And um, basically... <sighs> It's the idea is you kind of like have to get into the mind of your speaker and think uh, what makes sense based on the patterns that have been set up by the other lexemes that we have. Um, and especially with case systems, there's a lot of opportunities here uh, to uh, at least uh, cases themselves provide you with an opportunity to express a lot of things that you in a shorter amount of space than you could say in English. Um, but even though we do kind of the same thing with prepositions. Um, but the idea is, um, there is, there is probably, and, um, by the way, the, the, an excellent presentation for looking at precisely how this works is Matt Pearson's presentation from LCC one. Yeah. Uh, that's, that'll be on our, our, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Fiat Lingua. I think that'll, it'll get you there. It, it, it that discusses, um, at least that discusses the seeds of what he discussed in his paper that was on fiatlingua.com. Everything's named the same. Um, yeah. but, but he, he kind of, uh, at least it's easier, I think, to hear somebody discuss it and go over it as opposed to just reading a paper. Um, the idea is that these cases usually start out with some sort of a base case, some sort of a basic meaning. But then the idea is that, uh, you have a verb and that it's the verb really, the verb that's ahead of the sentence. It's usually the one that determines what its dependents are doing, right? So what its subject is doing, what its object is doing, and what, if anything else, it does. Uh, and then obviously, as you extend outward, it's be, the, the connection becomes less and less tenuous. So, you know, no verb is going to subcategorize for yesterday, right? The, an, ad, an adverb of time like that. Um, you know, it, it's pretty much going to have you know, something like that is almost going to have the same meaning in every context, the further you get out. But um, so with a case language, since you have something that just attaches right to the noun or maybe inflects upon the noun and you can um, use it without having to add any other verbiage, then if a verb is not going to make use of a particular case, mm -hmm you have the opportunity to use that case for another role commonly associated with that verb. Right. Uh, and so uh, that's where, like, you know, with, uh, with Dothraki, you have, uh, like, verbs for cut, uh, for example, or stab, where um, the canonical case role is, you know, the nominative, since it's a nominative accusative language, it's a nominative subject or agent and an accusative object. It's the thing that's getting hit, the things that's getting cut. But if if something is not going to be wholly affected by that action, um, rather than having to add all this verbiage, like, you know, like, uh, I, I stabbed, uh, or it's like, you know, I cut the pineapple, but only a little bit. I didn't actually cut all the way through it. I just cut into it a little bit. And having to add all of that, mm -hmm. you have these other case roles that you could just throw right in there. 
Um, and so for, for that, I believe you use, um, use the ablative there, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like rather than, so the accusative is what's expected. The ablative is something that is not expected with that verb. And so basically what it does, and here this almost goes back to Gricean maxims, right? Where with Grice, with Grice's conversational maxims, uh, speakers have the understanding that they're being cooperative. And so they expect a certain thing from a conversation. If somebody says something that's counter to what's expected, they have to believe that the person talking to them is saying something relevant. And so then it's up to them to determine how it's relevant. Mm, the same yeah. thing kind of happens with these verb roles where it's like, you know, somebody uses the verb cut and they're using an object and it doesn't have the accusative, but they're using the allative. You have to assume that what they're doing is relevant, that they're trying to convey information to you. But that obviously, if what they meant was they cut straight into something and it was completely cut in two, they, they would use the accusative, that this means something slightly different. And yeah. so then it's up to the kind of the hearer to supply that information. But then, of course, as these things get conventionalized and used everywhere, then everybody just knows, oh, yeah, if you just mean, you know, you cut into something a little bit, you didn't cut all the way through, then you use the ablative. And then that pattern itself can extend to other verbs that are similar um, just in the way that they kind of work, provided that that olive case role is available to it. Right. So, yeah, that's kind of the idea. Um, that's part of the fun of case languages. That's why you do case languages. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Don't just have them to use them in their boring way. I mean, everyone knows what, you know, the ablative indicates motion out of or away from, but there's plenty of other things that you can do with it. Um, what I like about the slide that you have here for the talk here is I got to see that in work is sort of a systematic approach to using cases beyond the obvious meanings that we all learned from our Latin textbooks. Right. And or our Finnish textbooks or whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing is that even descriptions of language that I think come down to us are kind of like linguistic descriptions even come down to us the same way. We, uh, we are, we are given these case descriptions as in, this is what this case means. Mm -hmm. This is what it means. Then you get to other verbs and you're like, in this case, you use this case with this verb. Uh, or like, and, you know, maybe you come up with these list of exceptions. But, um, I mean, what the information that they're giving is useful, right? In that there is a basic sense for all these cases. But if you try to go backwards from the case into all these other instances, that's where you run into problems where you see like, uh, conlangs that have, you know, any, any number of cases between five and, and 57. And, um, <laughs> right. Where, um, you have cases where it's like, this is the name of this case and this is how it's used rather than how, what other way might one, what, what other way might one, uh, express this concept given a finite set of cases rather than right. say adding, adding another case, adding another case and right. blah, blah, blah. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this I is, think... th- this makes me think of what I've said earlier, which is to a, a very large degree, words take their meaning from the company they keep. I think we can say yeah. the same thing about case roles. Yeah. I think anything actually that, so case mood to some extent aspect, all those things where, you know, you have a broad category of grammatical inflection that has all these named things that linguists have identified. That basic definition does not have to be the end-all, be-all. It might be at the core of what that case is used for. That You know, you have to have some reason to call the case by right. that name. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, 
they'll have there's going to be all sorts of secondary uses and even it may even be that you know, a case is actually used more for some very specific thing than for its core meaning yeah um and actually i have a, a really nice example there's tons of examples from this book by bybee but um oh which by the way i really should mention this i got this book um uh, gosh, now I, I can't believe I can't remember what, but it's a book from Bybee and Pavliuka and Williams, I think it is. I got it from Rick Harrison, uh, periodically, or at least, uh, he's not doing it anymore, but Rick Harrison on his blog, uh, langbreeze.blogspot.com was, um, he just had like a whole bunch of linguistics books and he said, um, here are some books. If you want them, uh, just send me an email. And this was one where I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And it was, <laughs> Awesome. Anyway, so thank you. <laughs> thank you, Rick Harrison. Yeah. But um, they have an example that I think it's really instructive as to kind of looking at what kind of what goes wrong with, I think, uh, some some conlangs. So they were talking about past tenses, uh, various types of past tenses that are used throughout languages. Um, and one of the examples they show is the uh, so there's, you know, you, you probably lots of people have heard of. Um, uh, kind of immediate past or general past versus uh, like narrative past or historical past. So it's like, you know, something happened, but then, you know, something happened ages ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, languages will have that. Another one is um, the so-called hodiernal past, mm, which yeah. is, yeah, it's something that happened today or something that happened yesterday versus something that happened in the past that wasn't today or yesterday. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if with just that amount of information, Right, a conlanger and look at that and like, whoa, there are languages that have, you know, a special, you know, affix that means, you know, earlier today, one that means yesterday. Well, why couldn't they also have one that was two days ago, three days ago, four days ago, five days ago, and so on? And it's like, yeah, theoretically, a language could do that. A language can do whatever you can imagine it could do. But just by using that nomenclature, it presents kind of a false idea about how those specific languages work. Because if you look at that, it's not as if you know, say, here's your stem men, right? It means uh, sleep and mena means slept earlier today. Meni meant slept yesterday and menu meant slept in the past. That's not ever how it works. Like it's not ever how it works. Usually what happens is they didn't have that system at some time in the past. They had kind of a completely different system that got used in a conventionalized way. And so that what used to be, say, an imperfect Mm-hmm. Uh, became a hodiernal. Yeah. And then what, uh, what was a perfect suddenly became this non-hodiernal past. What was uh, the book called? You know what? Can, can we just wait and can I go upstairs and look at the stupid title of the book? No, wait, wait. <laughs> no, no, no. Even better. Even better. Internet. Internet. All right. Hold on a second. I will tell you there's going to be typing that you hear. It just sounds um, phenomenal. I'm like basically nice. like drooling Perkins. over this book. The, here we go. Oh, yes. It's a very simple title. The Evolution of Grammar. That's that's the main title. It's The Evolution of Grammar. It's by Joan Bybee, Revere Perkins, and William Pagliuca. Uh, that's the, the Italian spelling of Pagliuca. Uh, and then the subtitle is Tense Aspect and Modality in the Languages of the World. Outstanding book. Outstanding book. Yeah, um, I may I, put that in our uh, show notes if you uh, give me the link over Skype. But um, Sure. Getting back a little bit to Dothraki, and I kind of want to go a little bit. I I know that this audience is going to be more interested in 
your the grammar stuff than any other audience that you talk to probably. Right. But I do kind of want to other than other than your dothraki.org folks, I guess. But mm-hmm. um I do want to talk a little bit about how it was used in Game of Thrones because I know because like I recently was able to watch the first season because I bought cool. it on DVD. I have to and do that. There's there's some awesome moments that people don't really talk about but interest me like that um for one thing um I knew that Jason Momoa's performance was great but because of the awesome speech that was on YouTube everywhere and everything. Right. But there were other moments that when I actually watched the the stuff that you know the other like secondary Dothraki characters do pretty well. Yeah. Um and I kind of want to play like I captured a couple of little conversations. One is this awesome like code switching conversation between Ser Jorah and I think it's Rajaro. I'm yeah. not sure on the names of the Rajaro. So, yeah, yeah, I remember him. Yep. Rajaro. Okay, let's uh let's listen to that real quick. There's a lot of English in this, but it's kind of uh an interesting way of using the language. It's a good weapon for a Dothrakan. But a man in full plate, sorry, Tawako. The Arak won't get through the steel. That's where the broadsword has the advantage. Designed for piercing plate. Dothrakivo on the Oshari Tawako face. Armor. Armor. Armor make a man gross? Slow. Slow. It's true. It also keeps a man alive. So I like that conversation because obviously it's still, you know, TV dialogue, but it strikes me as very sort of a realistic sort of mm. code switching situation Natural. where but they both know a little bit of each other's languages and the, enough to speak to each other but they're switching between them in a natural way and you know at one point uh Rajaro forgets the word for slow and Sodora has to help him and all that sorry i was on mute there yeah <laughs> uh, no that was uh, that was actually uh, I, that was one of one of my favorite uh, little exchanges right there <laughs> and then after that yeah the, you here he comes in and um, yells about the rabbit <laughs> oh yeah, and I I also have um the part where who is it that comes in? Is it Erie or the other Erie? Yeah, it's Erie. Yeah. Um I I have that recorded too, but the um but it is um I I just want to say I like that um was that difficult to to translate? Did they like how did they write that up for you so that you could translate it? Uh, first of all, can you remind me which episode that was? I was looking through my stuff. I can't remember where it was. Uh, episode three, I think. That was episode three, really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Just one second. On just the one first second. season. I still have yeah, to get yeah. that, and I wanted to buy it today and watch it all, but uh, <laughs> no dice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. This was something that was added. Uh, that, that specific exchange that was added late, I, I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, there was actually a, um, okay, wait, 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 
right? And there's that. Um, that that scene kind of grew. Who was the writer of that episode? You ever remember? It, that that might have been Dave and Dan. Ah, oh, yeah. Here we are. And there's that bit about the rabbit. Yeah, and then they didn't use that. I don't think. Oh yeah, there's the Azul and Hanus Letetan, right? Um, so yeah, actually, that that scene first of all wasn't in the original version of the script, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, that that scene wasn't in the original version of the script. So that was one of those things that was kind of like added uh, really late. I think I was already done with most of the season's work, and then I'm like, like, oh, what's this? Um, but yeah, so they were. It was kind of like um, I, um, I, in fact, maybe can do I have it? Hold on a second, I'm gonna see. No, 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 no. Shoot, I don't, I don't have the actual script lines. So um, it was all done via email, basically. Mm-hmm. I didn't even see that oh, version okay. of the script. Yeah. So um, they, they kind of, uh, there was kind of a little back and forth on it about how best to do it, and um, and yeah, I remember uh, they. That uh, that first part, uh, so it's like one of the very first lines where Chora says something like uh, a good weapon for a Dothrakan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was originally all in Dothraki. Um, oh. So I thought that was actually pretty cool because <laughs> it's like it's like real code switching. Like he's just going in English, but rather than saying it's a good weapon for a Dothraki, mm-hmm. he says what you would actually say in Dothraki, which is Dothrakan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he, and he just kind of drops that right in English. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah. Because uh, the, the word Dothrakan, I don't think appears in the books. That's something that a form that you created, right? Yeah, that's just the that's just the ollative of yeah. basically a Dothrak. So, um, uh-huh. and it would that is what you would use if you were to translate that literally. And in fact, um, let me see what that line is. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, so the the full line is a. Uh, uh, and rather than saying that, he says it's a good weapon for a Dothrakaan. I thought that was neat. <laughs> yeah, and um, you see, you hear also a little bit of both of them have foreign language accents in each other's uh, languages. So Serjora's Dothraki, you can tell, is very different from uh, Raharo's. And then Raharo, there's some very specific things like uh, he has he can't do coda so he does does a h instead like he says like what does it say he say mech or something uh, oh, yeah. and um i find it interesting you actually provided some information on how to do dothraki accents too didn't you oh yeah i, I wrote up a whole thing um and did basically uh, i think three different accents mm-hmm. um so i gave them you know dothraki for or english i'm sorry english for a Dothraki speaker who really almost speaks no English. Um, and then I gave them a version that was slightly improved of that. And then somebody who was nearly fluent um, and then, you know, gave them MP3s for all that. I also um, uh, sometimes would record uh, English lines. So like if, if there was, if there was like a specifically an English line that was going to be in Dothraki and it was going to be featured, I would record that where it would be English, but I would do it in a Dothraki accent. Um, yeah. I, I thought Elias Gable, he was just outstanding. Yeah. I really liked him. I really liked fact, Amrita Acharya. They're both gone now. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> Spoiler alert. I, uh, just, uh, just to show how good the the um, those actors were, um, I'll, sh- I'll do the uh, 
the next part of that scene, which is Eerie coming in and saying that the, the Khaleesi wants something other than horse meat to eat. So, uh, yeah. uh, here we go. <laughs> I don't think she wants to be dog. (laughs) (laughs) I have to see this so bad. So so you hear that, and both of them sound very natural in the way that they speak. And uh, I don't know how accurate their speech is, David. You'd have to speak to that. But, you know, it's very uh, fluid, and it's very natural the way that they, they say things. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it's funny that uh, Sir Jorah understands what they're saying, and he's like, "I yeah. don't think she likes dog." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, any anytime you hear either of them speaking, so uh, Amrita Acharya or uh, Elias Gable, they're like ninety five percent. They're really close, and sometimes a hundred percent. They're 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 two of the best, uh, uh-huh. w- which is good because you know they were really the two fluent speakers that spoke the most outside of um, Jason Momoa, who was also great. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another guy who dies in the first season, um, Dar Salim, who plays Kotho, I think it is. He is really uh-huh. good. Uh, it, I, I was so sad when he died. <laughs> you, are in the, you are working on the wrong show if you're going to be sad when people die. Oh, I know. Oh, man. And they're killing off my Dothraki speakers faster than they die in the books, too. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Both, well, both. um. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah. It, it is. It, it is kind of too bad that you, they, they get. It's it it does feel kind of weird. They get these amazing actors that are doing their roles very well, and then they kill them off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's how the books are too. Is that you know he creates really great characters, but anybody could die at any moment. Yeah. Um. And uh. Yeah. And you know, just to remind you a little bit of Jason Momoa, I already played his entire big long speech in our Con Langry at the Movies episode, episode 52. So oh, I'm not cool. going to play that here, but just to remind you, he actually contributed a little bit to Dothraki. So yes, during the Dothraki wedding, uh, there's a fight that breaks out, and he's looking on, drinking from his horn, and looking, and he says this. <laughs> and I think I remember a blog post where you figured out that that may have actually come from... The, uh, the Haka. Yes. From the, the, the Maori chant, chant from New Zealand that says, La Itewaka or something. Yes. But Jason Momoa, even, even if he borrowed it from somewhere else, he's, he's obviously has internalized Dothraki to a, a large degree because he adapted it to sound like Dothraki. It's, it, it's not Itewaka, it's Iteoaka because yes. Dothraki doesn't have initial W. Yes. Yeah, and so I actually um, that that now means something in Dothraki, and I, I parsed yeah. it a little differently because I had to do something with it, right? Uh, that was the, <laughs> that that was the first mystery. That was kind of like I think that may have been the first Dothraki I ever heard from the show, and I was like, <laughs> "What the hell is that?" <laughs> so, um, but it wasn't going to be subtitled, so I thought, "Oh, whatever, I don't have to deal with that right now." But, um, <laughs> yeah, he had, he had a great accent, but 
so what I eventually did with that, so he's looking at that fight and I was like, what could he be saying there? And so I had I had to, 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 to slice it up. By the way, there's another one. The longest ever ad-libbed Dothraki line was from the last episode, the finale of of, uh, of season two. And uh, my next blog post is going to be about that. By the time you hear this, it'll probably already be up. So um, if you're listening, you can go look at it for everybody listening right now on the podcast. You know, wait a few days. Um, but um, so I, what I figured out was that it could be um, – with the, with, you know, with the, uh, with the, um, I'm sorry, with the stress patterns, it was probably, you know, I could get away with it being a command. So the first part would be a command and the second part would be a noun. And the second noun would likely be, uh, it could, I, I thought it could end with an H and that would, that's what would give it its word final stress. And so then I thought, okay, he's commanding them and then some noun, what could that be? And then for some reason, I had Mortal Kombat on the brain. And so I thought, I was just okay. thinking the same thing. Finish it. Yes. Yeah. And so basically, what he actually says is something like, test your might. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, eat they, eat they. Okay, hold on. Let, let me see. I'll, I'll actually find it here. They let. Okay. So no, not that. Uh, okay. So. We have this word, um, iste, which means that something has been tested mm-hmm. and therefore it's worthy. Um, so istelat is uh, a verb that means to be of high quality. That is, somebody has tested it and therefore it's of high quality. Um, so then when you costivize that, uh, if something starts with a vowel, what you do is you geminate the first consonant. And if it's a cluster, then usually the stop takes over. So the verb istelat becomes itelat, and that's kind of like to put to the test or to, to prove quality through some sort of trial. And then the uh, command form of that would be ite. And then with, um, I, I basically just coined a word uh, I really liked the idea of, because well, one of the things that always comes up is they always want, you always want neat, and if you're going to do like a language for a television show, you always need cuss words. <laughs> and you always end up needing to come up with words that really somehow map on to kind of like a Judeo-Christian worldview, even if they shouldn't, right? Yeah. So you need words for ghost, spirit, hell, heaven, and it's like, <sighs> but it's like you you have to come up with translations for them. You have to do something for it. So anyway, I I kind of divided the uh, Dothraki spirit into two. So there are. Uh, you know, there's the, the lei, there's the spirit that gets left behind. So somebody that, um, cause they came up with this idea that in order for somebody to join the other riders in the nightlands, their body needs to be burned. Their body mm-hmm. is not burned and it's just kind of left out for the vultures. Then that spirit doesn't get to go, you know, ascend basically. And it remains on earth as a lei. So that's one. And then there's this other one, the, the oaka. That's what it came from, just his coinage. And it's kind of like, it's not one's actual, like, spirit, soul, ghost, if you will. But it's like a combination of one's kind of physical ability, one's mental acumen, uh, and kind of like one's toughness, I guess. It's like metal in English, M-E-T-T-L-E. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like that. And so what he's telling them is, you know, it just, you know, prove your worth. Test your might. Test your might. <laughs> well, that's hysterical. 
Yeah, and it all <laughs> and it all came from him. Yeah, no, God, I had to do even more work for this one from the last episode. Ba- basically, the last line of Dothraki you hear in the show, which comes from uh, Ian Glenn, was entirely ad libbed, but it has oh, a wow. specific, but it has a specific meaning as well. Unlike this one that uh, Jason Momoa did, it has a specific meaning which is not even close to how you would translate it in Dothraki. Um, but, but yeah, and so I, I had to, I had to do some fancy footwork, but there's a story behind it. You'll see, you'll see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so yeah, so the, yeah, this one did eventually, uh, I, I forget it was on, um, okay. So I was doing the, the, the thing for CNN, the next list, and then they had blog posts and somebody wrote a comment on one of those blog posts that said that that thing, you know, the Itoaka, it, it came from the Hakka from Maori. I'm like, what? And so I looked it up and it's like, yes, uh, it did. It means, um, and it's funny, I should have looked at, if, if I could have looked at it as it's spelled, I would have been able to figure that out because, um, you can, you can look at what it would be in Hawaiian and, you know, that E, it's just a single word, the letter I. E, it means it means two. It also marks direct objects in pretty much all throughout Polynesian. And then te is the equivalent to k in Hawaiian, which is the uh, definite article. And waka is um, Maori for uh, canoe, and it means to the canoe. But it's kind of yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's what he was. That's what he was except telling those the, warriors. Put him in the canoe or something. I don't know. <laughs> except the the, the Thraki don't have canoes. So no, exactly. Know. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Yeah. So that's where that came from, and I was like, I was so delighted to know where that came from because I thought he was just kind of mumbling, but no, it came from somewhere, and that's where it came from. And I thought, mm. ah, now it's all put to rest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but at, at least he knew he he grasped yeah. Dothraki enough that he adapted it, which is really awesome. Oh, he did. Um, he got this out of uh, very well. Anyway, so I think we uh, do need to kind of wrap the, the the Dothraki discussion up. But hopefully, by the time this comes out, we you will be able to look at like the fan made grammar of Dothraki and all mm-hmm. the, the dictionaries and everything. Uh, so, uh, uh, can I ask two I questions? Think it's, Go for yes. it. I know the show's going on, but I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, oh. First, in the presentation you gave last year in Reno, mm-hmm. uh, you said that there were 3,034 words. Yeah. Is, has the next season completely exploded that, or was the next season already done mostly when you gave this presentation last year? Uh, I mean, well, how big is the dictionary now, I guess, is what I'm asking. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Uh, 3,437 words. I really slowed down in my, in my quinages, but, uh, that, um, but, but the thing was, I, I actually, for season two, most of the stuff I didn't need words for, um, which by the way was wonderful. Oh God. Yeah, that was it, it, it's too. so difficult to like translate on the fly and have to, at the same time, go through the entire process of coining a realistic, you know, uh, word because it's like oh brother uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah anyway so yeah it's I I had I had made the bold claim that Dothraki would be like five thousand words strong by the end of the year I'm not sure I'm going to hit that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I've just been got a whole bunch of other language projects that are now bombarding me but sure. uh, I'm I'm still coining away I'll get there <laughs> damn it okay okay and then the next uh, sort of the next question is much like with Navi. And not mm-hmm. just because they ended up on the same server. Um, yeah. A lot of the initial work and is 
sort of a fan effort both to collect a dictionary and to decipher somehow the grammar um, based on what they're seeing in the show and little tidbits that you're releasing. Um, I mean, can you talk just a little bit about that? I mean, how well are people doing? I mean, some people for the Not V project were very linguistically sophisticated. And I mean, obviously some people were not. We had a, you know, a few sort of linguistic superstars doing a really good job of sort of deciphering grammar we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. So, but what has that sort of experience been like? Uh, I think that um, especially the, uh, the the core Dothraki fans I have, um, you know, Ingemar Svensson and Kvok from Finland and uh, Daenerys from the Bay Area and um, uh, also uh, Tim from Reno, they're, they're, they, they actually have varying degrees of, of linguistic ability, but uh, they're getting pretty good with it. Um, it it's especially, I, I think, uh, Ingemar is pretty good at translation. Um, it's one of those things where there were, it was actually a kind of frustrating for them at first because, you know, I went to a lot of work to make sure that this was a naturalistic language um, and they would be really frustrated every time there were exceptions, mm-hmm. uh, anytime there were irregularities, anytime I was like, uh, it's like, well, that verb doesn't work that way. And you're like, ah, why? It's <laughs> like, sorry. Yeah, um, it, it is. It's interesting because the same thing happened in Natvi to such a degree that as we learned more of the language and more sort of weirdnesses and irregularities came seeping out, like people left. There's this idea that somehow language ought to be simple and straightforward and pure, especially if you're going to make a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was interesting to me to see the resistance, right? We've all studied languages in school mm-hmm. where yeah. there's weirdness. I don't know why we would expect a fictional conlang not also to have that. Yeah, well, I think it's because a lot of people that are coming to languages for the very first time or coming to conlangs for the very first time through a program like Game of Thrones or through a movie like um uh like avatar uh they are going through all of the very same questions that the that people who come to conlanging for the first time are going through where it's like well oh if a language can do this then it should do this yeah. or um wait a minute if i'm creating a language then i can make it so that all plurals are exactly the same and they're never irregular and it's like um it takes a <laughs> I think it takes a lot of knowledge uh, and understanding of the history of how conlanging has evolved on the part of somebody who's coming to it for the first time to understand why it would be valued to try to create a language that would appear to look like a natural language. That's not something that's going to come straight off the bat. Um, and so, you know, if at the very same time they're thinking to themselves, oh, you mean we can make a language that's regular if at exactly that moment they're being encountered with a language where it's like, here are the irregularities, and isn't that cool that this language is so natural? There's just like, you know, a clashing of worlds there that um, I think would almost feel like a betrayal <laughs> because it's like they've, they've just made this really great discovery about how language can be simple. Mm-hmm. And here you are giving them uh, their very first language that somebody could create, and it's not simple. And it's like it almost feels like a betrayal, or even perhaps like unsophisticated. It's like, oh well, don't you realize that could just be regular, <laughs> right? <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a reaction. It's like, why would you do that? But um, but yeah. yeah. So uh, what can you I do? Think, Back- I, 
I think we all, as conlangers, probably as one of our first languages, created something that was a little uh, philosophical. Maybe not. Well, I don't know. I know that um, very early versions of Ayuria, back when it was still called Aero, Aero, um, mm-hmm. uh, it was. Uh, I had stuff like um, very philosophical reasons for choosing different genders, and uh, you know. Of course, it was completely regular for a long time and such yeah. like stuff, things like that. And so, you know, it mm-hmm. there, I guess that it, it makes sense that they're going through the same stages of denial and despair and yeah, find the it, acceptance. It's, it's something, <laughs> you know, it's something that is going to subside, uh, the more people know about conlanging in general. And they're going to get that through these big productions. I mean, that's how people are going to hear about it. But little by little, as it becomes less extraordinary and more commonplace, uh, the issues are going to slowly but surely seep out. It's going to take like a half a century, but yeah. uh, eventually it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Or at least so that, that's, I that's what I, 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 I want conlanging to explode, but that's because oh, yes. I want more <laughs> listeners, but I don't know how long. <laughs> all right so those are my two questions thank you for letting me make the show go even longer (laughs) okay are are we all done mike do you have any special questions i've just like this whole time i realized i've been really really quiet but i'm i'm still i'm i'm almost being a little bit of a listener and when i hear something great you guys i mean it's i'm my mind is blown i feel like i'm talking to a superstar um (laughs) But I also haven't seen Game of Thrones, so a lot of this I'm like sal- like salivating over here. I'm like, oh my gosh, this delicious chocolate velvet cake of a la- of conlang, and I'm just wanted. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. But as far as questions go, um, no, I'm I'm just I'm in awe, and I feel like I'm. It's Christmas. I feel like so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really would like to talk more about uh, Dothraki. It's really fun to talk to with David, but I think. I'm going to move on. We got two really quick feedbacks and then we'll, we'll be doing, we'll be wrapping up the show. So, uh, really quickly, uh, we got two different thing, two, two emails. One is from Zealous and he said, he says, I thought I would tell you about a recent conlang wiki that is growing. Uh, we are still somewhat small, but are working on becoming a great source of conlang information and, so he linked us to this new, it's conlang.wiki with two Ks and two I's dot com. Uh, so wiki. Uh, <laughs> Leave it to conlangers to try to make that distinction for <laughs> phonemic somehow. Uh, uh, and um, it's doing pretty good. I don't know. We have like several different, we have frath wiki and another wiki. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Can I? David can I was saying can, before the show why why do we really need another one? But it, I don't know. It's I, it's it's Wikipedia formatted, so that's nice formatting there. That that's cool. But look, you, you're you're the host of the show, so please take the neutral point of view. I'm going to voice an unpopular opinion here. I I mean, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. You've started up a wiki. It's great that uh, information is just kind of proliferating in all these spaces. But Lord, I I wish we could have one wiki. You know, one source. I mean, it's a it's a wiki. Anybody can add to it. 
you don't you don't need more than one. But uh, I, I'm sure I, it's nice if it is like straight up Wikipedia formatting. I'm, that's probably better than Frath Wiki. But you know, ugh, whatever. Um, it's this is probably just me being an old timer and remembering the days when literally everybody knew everybody who had anything to do with conlanging on the internet. If there was something on the internet, yes. you knew them by first name. You knew everything about them. And it's so impossible now. And um, maybe that's just a, a little bit of my soul dying, but uh, that's all right. Uh, I, uh, I, will, I will visit the wiki and I will yes. correct, correct your punctuation. Like I do. With <laughs> I, I know that, but well, I, I will say, uh, you know, BJP, you are, uh, the president of the, uh, the LCS. And we all oh, know yeah. the LCS has a dark plan to unite all, all conlangers under oh. one flag, oh. whether they like it or not. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That was my, that was my personal opinion. That wasn't mm. my, that wasn't my as L, as president of LCS opinion. As as president of LCS, I'll, I'll say if you ever want to do a, a community project like that, and um, I, please don't spend your own money on it. We can give you free web space as much as you want, unlimited space, unlimited bandwidth. Like, please make use of us. Um, we're just here to help. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, if like you know, if you're if you're actually paying money to to host the wiki, like we can give it to you free. But it, I think it's the same software that FrathWiki uses, though. So if you like your software better, maybe that's a reason to stay. But I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, and and full disclosure, I was I was joking with David there, but I'm on the board of directors of, of the LCS, and uh, William is a member, and the the site, uh, the Conlangery site, is hosted on uh, Conlang.org's uh, stuff. But um, yeah, so. Even we, though Conlangery is not really directly affiliated with LCS, we're we're all connected, mm-hmm. sponsored. But yeah, really, we we I'm, don't we don't mm-hmm. bite. Just want to help. <laughs> Please yeah. let us help. <laughs> yeah. As far as me, I'm not I'm not hooked in yet, but I'm I'm scouring to try to find. But yes, I'm, just, I'm sure we all will be sooner rather than later. Because <laughs> I I'm still yeah. I'm still working off of notebooks and papers and binders here, so I'm trying to up to the web and work with that oh yeah and if, there are, if there are any teachers listening this is completely off topic but if there are any teachers listening i think it's so imperative that starting in elementary school kids start learning at the very least some basic html i mean mm. we're headed in that direction by the time you're 20 something you have to be able to do stuff on the web and yeah. it's beyond facebook you're doing a disservice to the children by not teaching them they need it. Mm-hmm. That's my. That's that's another one of my <laughs> popular opinions. There you go. Yeah. But then so we'll count David's words of wisdom. Well, we were talking. <laughs> we were talking about earlier the ways to uh, store a um a dictionary. I'm I'm one of the ones who still have like when you talk shoebox, I actually have a shoebox with cards in it. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I just have to find somewhere to place it and give it a nice little home. No, but that's nice though. Then they'll have something to put in a museum when we go back over <laughs> artifacts. You know, it's like yeah, this is it. This is um, anyway, um, and we got also another email, which was literally just a link mm-hmm. from James here. Uh, that uh, it's a conlang lexicon generator, and it randomly generates up to two hundred words. I'm not sure if this is really better than. And anything more than just like what you can do with 
um, the other random word generators. What's the one that everybody uses? I use it too, but I forget. I used words. to use one that I think's been down. Didn't didn't awkward's go down? Awkward's that's the one that I use. I didn't I, I haven't yeah. used it recently, so I, I use one that was created by Josh Brant Young, he's now known as Josh Birch, that only works on FileMaker Pro for the Mac, and it is awesome. Yeah. But it's only mine. <laughs> 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 if you if you if you happen to have FileMaker Pro on the Mac, give me a send me an email. I'll send it to you. But God, it is incredible. That Conlang Lexicon <laughs> yeah. generator. I think it says it's a buck fifty. So oh, is know. it? Yeah, on the right hand side it says price one dollar fifty cents. I'm not. Uh, well, maybe maybe we should. One of us should try that out and do a review of it. Mm-hmm. Since I mean it's cheap, but it's paying money for it. But yeah. um, it's. Uh, uh, anyway, and we'll have to see what what it works on. But uh, I don't know. Somebody promoting does, their little thing. Does it have? Um, does it? Does it at least have the ability to add historical sound change in sound changes in? Because if not, uh, uh, that would be a great thing to have in a word generator, wouldn't it? Well, mm. that's what I. That's what I have in Josh Brent Young's thing. I'm sorry, Josh. You Burch's do thing. so oh, you can automatically absolutely. apply sound changes to your random roots. Yeah, and so that's, you can. They're ordered with respect to one another. You can check to make sure you haven't made any mistakes. It's awesome. Oh, That's man. awesome. Yeah. Can you uh, now? Can you automatically generate forms? Yeah, like, of uh, course. Grammatical forms. Yes. Ooh. Wait, what? Grammatical grammatical forms? forms. Like, kid, does it automatically generate like suffixes for you? Like, what are you talking about? Like, like can you, you put, like you just like type suffixes. it? Please give me ergative suffix, and it gives it to you. <laughs> well, I mean, like, can you define suffixes and have it like? Do sound changes on the paradigm? Oh no, no, that would be ah uh, well. Hmm. That uh, that that would be awesome as well. But then I just, I just input them by hand myself. You know, I create the mm-hmm. paradigm myself at time x, and then have it do what it does. Yeah. Um. <laughs> With that noise. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I think we can wrap this up. Uh, David, do you already give your final words of wisdom, or do you want have, want to give something special for for us at the end of the show here? Uh, special words of wisdom. It would be, uh, I will just, I guess I think the, the overall message that I want to send is don't let your framework define what you do or the, or the, or the terms you come up with. The nominative is not the nominative. Okay. <laughs> and William. I can't beat that, so I'm just going to shut up. Mike. <laughs> um, I would third his motion and say that's awesome. And yes, uh, just, try things and same as always plus awesome from david (laughs) okay and i'm going to say happy conlanger you have been listening to conlangery you can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening.
Yeah, so... Well, it's not uh, in the book, so... Yeah, yeah that's cool. Man. I feel like I slept from while... Did a nap? I, feel like, I felt like I slept while I was running a marathon. There we go. You're my cat? Yes. All right. What's going on right now is that uh, uh, my wife is filling up a bathtub. Oh, so, okay. Um, you know, it's off in the distance, but it's hearable. At one point in time, it will have to end one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> Periodically, I, I would put up a photo of her on the, on the Kamikawi word of the day, but then um, one of my two fans there. I think he got a little bit too excited when photos of her would come up, so I kind of stopped doing that. Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. But yeah, I was uh, I was not impressed by the movie, but my goodness was I impressed by Michael Fassbender. He is a remarkably <laughs> creepy android. Uh, I, I went and saw um, what did I see today? Man in Black 3. Hmm. I like I'm guessing there are no conlangs in that. Not really. I mean, this this alien kind of supposedly talks to his uh, counterpart, but it's just like a basically the equivalent of of uh, what Chewbacca speaks. How it's not really a language, but it's an utterance in a non English sound effect language. Well, I recently saw the entire run of uh, Firefly. Oh, I haven't seen that. The Chinese is not as bad as I remembered it because I could oh. actually make out a few things. It's like they insert like pigu and ghosts and all that kind of stuff. But when they just like go off in Chinese, I don't understand what they're saying. Mm. <laughs> so has anybody seen Dude Where's My Car? Uh no, no. I'm not. <laughs> well there's uh there's there's one instance in there where a guy says to the other in Cantonese, uh, like uh, you guys were really lopsop doi last night. Which uh, apparently means uh, garbage can or trash can. Um, <laughs> my 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 friend who speaks Cantonese, uh, he was reasoning that perhaps they were trying to say wasted or trashed. Oh, mm. oh okay. <laughs> but uh, dude, that was so garbage can. Yeah, I'd like to learn some Cantonese. I I only know like a couple you know, phrases, like, you pick up. Like, one time, because I was going to f- visit a uh, friend in Hong Kong, someone taught me the phrase, Le Langzo Gum Do Gay, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, which means, uh, roughly, like, you're even more beautiful than the last time I saw you, or something. <laughs> nice. That, that's, that's a good opener. One thing that uh, kind of funny happened to me when I was coming back from Virginia from last weekend... Um, I got stopped by airport security and they tested my blue snowball microphone for a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I asked the lady, Can I, is it okay there's a microphone in there? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. And so I'm like, really? And I take it out and she's like, whoa, what's that? And I'm like, it's a microphone. And she's like, oh, I thought you were one of those little things. You going to call the mothership with that or something? And I see this strange voice is David J. Peterson. Yep. <laughs> yes. Hello, okay. Mike. It's cool. very Hello, nice David. to meet you. That's right. Nice you were not here the last time we had David on. That's correct. The Learn Navi people, it's like they have their own server 
Mm-hmm. Like it's actually a physical device and it yep. keeps breaking. No, oh. it does not keep breaking. This is the first time the thing is broken. <laughs> this is the second time. Well, the second time in short order, so it's I consider it the same event. Mm. Not me. <laughs> What'd you say? Any, anyway, we want to be free of your grasp. <laughs> All right. He he want he thinks uh Dothraki.org should be LCS. Um okay. on LCS server. Kinda like Hostgator. I think Hostgator, Green Geeks, and DreamHost are the three big ones right now, though. I think GoDaddy does hosting too, but Lord, <laughs> stay away from those people. Right. Mm, yes, I moved all my GoDaddy domains over to Hover. Oh, is it GoDaddy or Goat Daddy? Go Daddy. Oh, because when he said don't, Go Daddy, don't do I'm you like, don't what? use GoDaddy. They're idiots. Oh my God! But I'm looking up GoatDaddy.com. Please be something. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not something you want to see. Oh, this is actually disappointing. GoatDaddy.com. This page is parked free, courtesy of GoDaddy.com. Ah, they they uh, got to it first. Yeah. <laughs> At first, I'm like Goat Daddy. That sounds like an interesting site, but yeah, Goat Daddy. Hmm. Yeah. So, no, who, I don't. Who's... When a domain registrar supports stuff like SOPA, you know that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the deal with that? We, you know, for all these people that in the conlanging community, they claim to be like techie and programmers. Where the hell is all our conlanging software? <laughs> uh, David, now you've been on my show uh, twice. Yep. Why don't you see if you can get me on Language Made Difficult? Oh, um, that's right. No, that's a good idea. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even think about that. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, uh, we, you know it's, it's intended to be a humorous podcast, so I always try to think about getting um, um, funny people on. Not that you're not funny. Yeah, I'm not I, as I, funny as some others. But, yeah. No, 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 but I, I never thought Conlang first. No, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, you mentioned the, I'm sorry. I, I just said it'll happen. Anyway, go ahead. 